Greetings, everyone. I'm excited to welcome Sudhir Bojwani, co-founder and CEO at Aura Lab. Sudhir, welcome. Thanks, Ben. Good to be here with you. Yeah, excited to have you on the show today. Let's dive right in. Tell us a little bit about your background. My background, my journey. I was born in India, long time back, I suspect. I'm a software engineer, did my engineering in software, moved to US in 97, been in the Bay Area. I live in Bay Area right now in Silicon Valley, if you will, uh, since 1999. Uh, really a software engineer at heart, worked in various companies, some small, some big, but generally speaking, been fascinated and love software in general. That's the that's my number one. I still write like writing code, even though I'm a CEO of a company. I like writing code. It's uh, it's still a lot of fun. So yeah, that's very high level about me. And obviously, we'll talk about my journey as well, how we got to Oro in a second. But yeah, at a very high level, a software engineer, if you will. Yeah, definitely love that. Yeah, because I love still digging into the spreadsheets, creating forecast models as a CFO. So yeah, yeah, I love that stuff at heart. So yeah, tell us about Oro. And, and is this, well, first, Oro, is this your first founder role? Have you founded companies in the past? Yeah, I have. I have. Didn't, didn't succeed though. Sometimes you have to learn. You have to fail. Only then you learn, I suspect. But so it's not my first rodeo, if you will. But the first one was hit by 2000, in 2008 by 2008. <laughs> and that was, we were pretty close to that one too. We were doing something in the area of mobile advertising at that time. Uh, it was a very fascinating subject to me. At that, uh, I, I really thought mobile is going to be big. It sounds funny now. It's, it's 2023 though. That yeah. was 2027 when I said that mobile is going to play a much bigger role than it does. I ended up joining even uh, after I did my startup, I ended up working at Wells Fargo actually in the mobile banking team at Wells Fargo as a senior software engineer after my company didn't work out. And I really, really believed in mobile. I still obviously did, but now it just seems like, what are you talking about? At that time, it was really big. In, even in Wells Fargo, it was a small team. We started with a very small team and nobody believed that mobile banking is going to be the biggest thing that banking is going to see, and, but that's reality. So yeah, that's my second uh, company, if you will. But first one didn't work out having said that. Okay. All right. So Meg Seal, big company experience, then founding small companies. And so, yeah, let's talk about your current endeavor now, Oro Labs. Tell us what products or services the Oro offers. Yeah, yeah. So we are what we call, we are in a procurement software. We are a SaaS company in the procurement space. That's my background after the whole Wells Fargo mobile advertising I talked about. I ended up at this company called Ariba. Ariba was an independent company at the time. After two years of me being at Ariba, it got acquired by SAP. Then I became part of SAP and ended up running all of Ariba engineering uh, product management. So I was the chief product officer for SAP Ariba. Most people may not know, but Ariba is still the biggest procurement software company in terms of revenue. So I learned a little bit, thing or two about procurement and find the problem very fascinating. So Oro is really my learning experiences from Ariba some of the problems that I saw and I just could not solve. And the key, key problem being, why do why is there so much friction between business users and procurement? Why can't they talk to each other very nicely? Why is it so difficult for a business user to get through the process? As it turns out, people always say Amazon-like experience, but reality is procurement is a bit more complex people because you're not buying commoditized goods and services. You're not buying papers and pencils. You're buying something more complex. You're trying to get a logo redesign done. You're trying to buy services to build a POC for your uh, whatever big project. You might be buying a part that goes into a car. So buying a lot more complex stuff using procurement software. So I find this problem fascinating. So we started Oro three years back with a mission, very simple mission. We call it humanized procurement experience. You want to humanize the procurement experience and we'll peel the onion on that, what that actually means. I believe it needs a lot more investment. So we started Oro three years back and focuses procurement. How do we build procurement that is more accessible to 
more employees in the company. Okay. Yeah. I love that. And tell us, let's dive in a little bit more into procurement because I think that could mean a lot of things. Like if I'm looking for, you know, to outfit my office with a bunch of new furniture, or is this, you know, bigger things like, yeah, like you met, like say auto parts and supplying auto parts to, to my distribution center. So who, who are you going after for these procurement processes? Typically procurement process fall, fall, depending on the industry, fall in the area, fall in the area of CFO slash finance in general. Procurement fits in, sits somewhere in the finance department. There are some debates on that topic too. In some companies, it can fit in operational team too, like COO department too, because it is kind of operations to a degree as well. So it can fit in one of those two places, typically, depending on the industry. But for most industry, it will fit in the finance department, I would say, broadly speaking. So it fits in the finance. So we sell our software typically to either a chief procurement officer of a company, if the company is big enough, or the CFO. Some companies may not have a designated role for a CPO like a chief procurement officer, but in that case, we can sell into the finance. Okay. And, and what type of industries? All industries? Are there certain industries that you're targeting right now? Yeah, no, no. Right now, our focus, we being a startup, a three-year-old company, we can't be that broad. While the problem we are trying to solve and our solution can be broad, our go-to-market strategy is a little bit more narrow because we think that's a better strategy. So we focus on life sciences, pharmaceuticals. That's our primary industry, financial services, and manufacturing. Those are the three primary verticals we focus on. And the fourth vertical, which we didn't think we'll focus on, but it got, we got pulled into it, let's say, is this software vertical. Software companies, they're buying our software a lot. So, so those are the four verticals, if you will, we focus on. And it sounds like, and I'm guessing, like each industry has its own procurement process, which is why you have to right now focus on uh, specific industry niches. Correct, correct. Each of those industries have some nuances. The problem definition, broadly speaking, is the same, broadly speaking, but that's very broad. Once you uh, slice it a little bit, thin it out a little bit, and you realize, oh, in life sciences, for example, healthcare professionals, quote-unquote doctors, also play a part role in procurement process, whereas obviously doctors don't play a pro process in financial services company. On the other hand, in manufacturing, oh, POC is a very, very big deal, so that, that has a very big impact. Oh, as it turns out, software companies buy a lot of software. There are some nuances, nuanced differences between these companies, while the broad problem statement is the same. And could you give us an example of, say, a procurement, like financial services, like, you know, how will your application be used in, in that setting? Yeah. So typically, if you think about financial services company, they are regulated a lot by OCC. There's a lot more regulations around what they call third-party due diligence is a very important part of the a part of the puzzle for all, life, all financial services company. That means any third-party the company does business with, they need to know exactly what happened from a risk perspective. So what will that look like from our perspective? A user will come into a tool like Oro. People typically are not buying papers and pencil, honestly speaking, mm -hmm. they're not buying that. They're buying something more complex. I want to get some consulting work done with a third party. They come to our tool. They say, hey, this is what I want to do. They define the requirements in our tool. And typically a company will have a process and that process is geared towards risk as well as cost savings. But for a financial services company, it's more about risk than uh, cost savings actually is geared more by risk. So they will have multiple steps. Like for example, if you're going to do consulting services that involves customer data, then obviously data privacy team will come into play. If you're going to do some consulting work that may involve some core IP sharing, then IP team will come into play. Legal team is always there. Procurement team is always there because they are helping you negotiate better, et cetera, et cetera. So it will go through multiple steps in the process. Eventually, it will convert itself into a classic purchase order, which will create a purchase order and send to the supplier. So this entire orchestration of the end-to-end -end workflow happens in our tool. And the most important thing is 
we guide the user. Hey, depending on what you're trying to do, we'll tell you what are the right steps that you may have to go through and in which order you should execute the steps so that you can achieve the maximum pot potential outcome and which is speed is the num number one thing business user cares for. I want to get this thing done with the least possible effort and as fast as possible. But from a company perspective, compliance is important. Com compliance and risk cannot be compromised. How do we meet, how do we achieve both of those things at the same time is the core value proposition of Oro. Okay, yeah, I appreciate that example. And, and tell us a little bit about your current pricing structure. I could see this going a lot of different ways, but how do you price your, your product? So our goal is our software should be used by every single employee in the company. So we thought a lot about user-based pricing and we said, let's not do that. User-based pricing will not make sense. Otherwise, people are going to start counting which user to give access to and which user not to give access to. Our whole value proposition is our user experience is so easy that everybody should be able to do it. And we'll guide the user to the process. That's the whole value proposition. So it's not user-based pricing. So what we do instead is we do a pricing, which is we are a fundamentally a workflow tool, a, a very sophisticated workflow tool, very, very sophisticated, which is we call it smart procurement workflows. Smart being it is able to consume the data in a smart way so that it can guide the user to the process. So our pricing model is based on how many requests you pump through the system. Fundamentally, fundamentally, very simple pricing model. If you are a mid-sized company or a large company, you say, hey, I'm going to do 100,000 requests in a system. We'll give you a fixed price for that. That's it. Simple. Okay. Okay. I like that. And do you have a minimum where you'll charge something even if there's no usage in the platform? Yeah, 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 yeah. We have yeah. to have. There's a platform yeah. fee, obviously. Yeah, there's platform fee. fee. I mean. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. We learned a lot in the pandemic on that. And uh, so I appreciate that clarity around the pricing. So what what year did you found the company? 2020. It was found exactly three years ago. Pretty okay. Much same month, oh. three years ago. Oh, awesome. So 2020, three years ago. And are you, do you have a headquarters location? Or are you all virtual? No, no, 100% virtual. We have teams all over the country as well as we have a team in Europe as well now because we are seeing great amount of traction in Europe. So we have people in Europe and definitely we have a team in India as well. So yeah, those are the, but yeah, okay. virtual. Okay. And then what's, what's your current team size? Uh, we are approaching 100 people now. Oh, approaching 100 people. Okay. Okay. Spread around the globe, it sounds like. And then are you, at this point, are you generating revenue, early revenue? Tell us about your, your kind of, you know, anything you want to share around revenue size. You know, you are definitely generating revenue. We are working with some amazing customers. We are generating revenue. We're not sharing exactly the number quite bit. So we are a little less than 10 million, let's say. Not, not hit our 10 million, but we're definitely well above 1 million, let's say that. Somewhere mm -hmm. in that. So we are definitely generating revenue. And yeah. Okay. Okay. Awesome. And then tell us, so targeting these specific niches, you know, looking for CFOs, CPOs, if they're big enough, big enough. So tell us a little bit about your go-to-market motion. How are you finding these prospects and landing them? So from a go-to-market perspective, we focus on two. Size is a very important criteria for us. So we focus on companies that are large enterprise as well as mid-market companies. So large enterprise, typically your classic account-based marketing. We've identified the set of customers that we believe will be good targets for us. And based on the problems we have solved for existing customers, which are the customers that look like them. So that's a classic ABM motion, a classic. Now, mid-market is a little bit more tricky and interesting. That's where we are experimenting a lot with our partner-based strategy. We believe in the partner strategy. So we have assigned almost 10 partners who we are trying to go to market with. In the mid-market also, we don't go lower end of the mid-market. We try in the upper, upper mid-market, if you will, like 1,000 plus employee company as a regular barometer that we focus on. So that's those are two segments and two different market go-to-market strategies for those two segments. Okay, okay. And what about the sales cycle? Are these longer sales cycles, couple months? Are they 12 months? Tell us a little bit about what you're seeing there. When you go 
large enterprise, it's always a large sales cycle, especially if you want to sell into regulated industries. Like we want to sell into, whether it's life sciences or financial services or manufacturing, there's some amount of regulations, unfortunately, or fortunately, because that's also presents an opportunity. So those sales cycle typically tend to be, six months is the shortest, I would say, in that cycle. Six months I'll be super happy with. Uh, more like nine to 12 months is more classic. I would say nine to 15 is the sweet spot on that very large enterprise. And the mid-market is a little bit better, I think. We have closed deals under three months, but a classic deal would be, I would say, three to four months. Okay. And how does that conversation go? Because you're selling workflow procurement and like trying to get your solution in there. So you're, I mean, talking, you know, the people have to approve this maybe are the people who you're selling to. So how does that conversation go? <laughs> I mean, I tell you one thing, and you will realize selling into procurement and finance is not that easy, especially procurement. These guys are supposed to be professional negotiators. <laughs> they are supposed to hold the bar very, very high. So now you're trying to sell it to them, convince them. So the bar is quite high. So, um, I mean, it's not a, we know what value proposition they're looking for, a class, uh, depending on the situation. And large, I think the fundamental thing we say is your user adoption is directly tied to your outcomes. If users don't adopt the system, whatever system you may have, if they don't adopt a system, you cannot deliver the outcome. So what are the outcomes people are looking for? If you ask to CFO, they'll fundamentally say two things. One is, number one, they'll always tell you is, yeah, I want to drive savings. That's still one of the important things. But I believe savings cannot be driven without, if you don't even have visibility into what user is spending on, how are you going to drive the savings? So that's number one thing. Second is actually risk. Risk is at actually at the same level as savings, if not at a higher level. To say that, hey, I would like to manage my risk in a much, much better way. So we are driving our value proposition is completely based on that when we drive the value. So they have to be able to see tangible value. And given the market conditions, a lot of, cust lot of customers do ask for hard dollar savings. Show me the hard dollar saving, not soft. Soft soft dollar savings, like saying that, oh, you will save 3% extra next year. Some seems like doesn't cut it. You have to show the hard dollar savings. So really different conversations with different customers, but a lot driven by savings and risk. Okay, yeah, that's really interesting. In, in switching to the fundraising side now, how much capital have you raised to date? Uh, 60 million so far in two rounds. 60, okay, 60 million in two rounds. And then what your most recent round, what was Series B, 34 million, is that right? That's correct, that's correct. Okay. okay, all right, 60 million in total. And tell us, maybe with that Series B, you know, for other founders who are maybe at that stage, Series A, looking for that next raise, you know, what triggers or milestones led you to that Series B raise? Timing is everything, I tell you that much. I I have always believed in it. Our original goal was to raise money in 2024, not 2023. But we hit some key milestones, like we signed some pretty massive customers, really, really big customers, like Fortune 200 companies we're talking about. And that is, for our size company, it's a very big milestone. When, you, when we have signed like five of the Fortune 100 companies globally on our platform, they are on our platform now. So to say that once we hit that milestone and Investor, investors like so we use that as a mechanism to raise series b the reality is when you're a series a company going to series b you have to really dig into define either you go with the metrics if you wait long enough some people will say you know what i want to maximize my evaluation my valuation then you better have metrics to prove it or you have another important thing that has happened in a company like in our case signing five of the top 100 companies globally was an important event. the metrics may or may not be there but the indications are very clear that some big companies are going to move with you. So to figure out which way you want to go. 
So I, I I tend to believe in the second approach a little bit more because in the early stage metrics is not that easy to deliver. Metrics are really, really complex. But when we go to series C, I know it's 100% going to be driven by metrics pretty much. But series A to B, you have a little bit more room to use the milestone or the metrics. You have to decide which way you want to go. I love that. It's really interesting going A to B series raise, either go with the metrics or maybe if you've signed, say, five of the Fortune 100, pretty clear signal that, that something is working there. And in your fundraising journey so far, say with the 60 million and for other founders thinking about that raise or maybe a series B, any lessons that you'd like to pass on from your fundraising experience? I mean, again, nothing to go from series A, nothing new lesson to go from series A to B, to be honest, because our philosophy has always been the same fundamentally. I want to work with people. I wanted to work. I mean, again, we were, I, I also want to be honest and humble about it to say we were, we were uh, fortunate enough to be in a market which is considered to be growing. Procurement software, procure, procurement tech is very hot. If I was doing the same thing in marketing tech, it may not be so hot right now. So we have to be a little honest about that conversation too, because given the market conditions. So, but I'm in a procurement, uh, we are building a procurement software. So procure tech is very hot right now. Investors are willing to take bets and invest in that space. So I don't want to pretend that I'm so great that we got the money. It's also the little bit of market conditions, et cetera, for our industry. But having said that, the basic is still the same for us, which is I want to always work with a set of uh, partner matters. It's not just the form. Partner matters a lot. The person you're going to work with eventually matters a lot. And do they have a thesis in the space matters a lot. So trying to spend your time going to every VC is not going to solve your problem. You need to find the VC who has a thesis and believes in the space that you're trying to solve the problem in. That is the most important thing. If they don't have a thesis, you'll be burning your cycles a lot. And you're trying to convince somebody, educate somebody. It's like, most like doesn't work out, to be honest. Yeah, finding that founder investor fit, that they understand your market or invest in your market, that space makes, yeah, makes, makes a big difference. So appreciate that insight, Sudhir. And, and at this stage of your business, three years in, do you have a favorite number or metric that you're focused on to guide the business? Car is a really good matrix, to be honest. Okay. It's a good matrix, but... It's a double-edged sword, that one. So you have to be careful. So you go with ARR or CAR. People have this good old argument all the time. In fact, I was having the back and forth with a friend of mine last night on this same very topic. He He's a little bit ahead of me. He's a CEO of a company, a little bit ahead of me. He's a seven-year-old company. I'm a three-year-old company. So he can use CAR more comfortably than I can. So I should really rely on ARR as opposed to CAR, to be honest. He relies more on CAR. And so, but I personally like car in long term from a long term perspective. I think it's a it, it's a better indicate indication of a health of a business than ARR in my opinion. But at this stage, I think ARR is probably more realistic. Okay, and thinking about car committed or contracted annual current revenue, and you're are you focused on that because you do have some lag between when you sign a customer and you say you sign them up. I don't know for a hundred thousand dollar contract or whatever that might turn out to be. That you yeah the, the invoicing or subscription start date made be down the road so you're tracking both current revenue plus you know what you're just signing and typically enterprise software also has a scaling factor built into it your year two typically is bigger than year year one and year three typically after three years you should be at a maximum you are you should be you should be reaching a peak whatever that might be so because all customers these days do ask hey give me a ramp so you need a ramp as well so when you put it all put it all put together i think car seems to be good metrics yeah no appreciate that insight and Sudhir, really appreciate your time today. As we wrap up, tell us what's coming up next for Oral, Oral Labs. So we believe in the concept of humanized procurement experience, as I mentioned. And obviously, we will use GPT and a lot of the large language models to solve some of the problems, but it's more than that. 
it's not just GPT is cure, it cures everything suddenly. It's not the case. So for us, this humanizing the procurement experience, which is giving the flexibility to the humans, guiding the humans, not taking the power away from them, is what we believe in. That's why user experience is important to us. And we're going to release some really, really interesting feature. This is our core IP that we're going to release in Q1 of next year. I believe that's going to really help organizations achieve the user adoption and user experience and by virtue of which eventually their goals. Okay. Yeah, sounds good. Looking forward to that. So again, really appreciate your time today. If listeners would like to learn more about Oral Labs, where should we send them online? Appreciate our website first and foremost, orolabs.ai. Likewise, we have LinkedIn, Oral Labs. We are also on LinkedIn, our website. Those are the two best places. And we publish a lot of good articles there. Plus our, we recently participated at an event called DPW in Amsterdam, where we won the award as well, which was, we won the award for the best innovative procurement software. So that was, we, we appreciate that award, of course. So you get to hear our point of view on that, at least our, our view of the world. That's great. Congratulations on that. So if you'd like to learn more about what Sudhir is doing at Aura Labs, check out orolabs.ai to learn more. And or, Sudhir, really appreciate your time and sharing your experiences today. Yeah, thank you, man. It was a pleasure talking to you.